just to introduce myself, I'm Tara Garnett, the director at Table and a, a fellow here at the Oxford Martin School. And I'm joined by three uh, fascinating panelists who I'm going to introduce in a minute. Um, and I think each of these panelists is going to bring a different perspective to the livestock question, which is really the point of this evening. I think everyone here who's going to be uh, listening in on this evening will be aware of the fact that livestock are implicated in a, a range of social and environmental problems, not, not least of which, of course, is the problem of climate change. But we all also know that the problem, the livestock question is a very, very complex one. An example of an issue where there's a ton of evidence out there, but a lot of contestation of that evidence because of it being different kinds of evidence from different disciplines based on different scales of uh, of observation different contexts different sets of assumptions using different methodologies and it's an area where scientific understanding is fraught contested and and the upshot of this is that the evidence gets pulled and pushed in different directions and used in all sorts of way to give different answers to the question of what's the livestock problem and what ought we to do about it and of course, it's a topic where science interleaves with or, or is mediated by ethics and values, different different ways of deciding what to prioritise and different visions of what we actually want. And, and this really is the purpose of the evening. It's to try and dig down and explore with through this panel discussion why we hold the views we do about livestock and why we have different views and what evidence and values we bring to this discussions. So among our panelists, I hope us to look at where we disagree, but also what points of commonality we might be able to find. So before I go any further and introduce the panelists, just to say some housekeeping notes, it's all going to be recorded. Um, there'll be as much time for questions at the end as, as we can manage, given that the shortening, we will still have to finish at 6.30. Um, but you can, uh, can use the ask a question button and you can also vote on the questions that you see and the, the highest voting answers will we'll, we'll ask. So. On to the panellists. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Dan Reto, who's the Director of Food and Agriculture at the Breakthrough Institute, which is a, a California think tank which takes, I'd say, a tech-positive approach to ways of addressing our environmental problems. Um, also, uh, Dr Pablo Manzano um, from the Basque Centre for Climate Change, who originally a rangeland ecologist, who works now to try and understand livestock and their role within a, a context of this sort of complexity of social, economic and, eco and ecological variables and at different temporal and spatial scales. And finally, Dr. Helena Wright, who's the policy director at FAIR. FAIR's the world's fastest growing investor network, which is focusing on the environmental, social and governance risks in the global food sector, particularly those associated with intensive animal agriculture. So I'm going to ask each of you to, um, to talk just for a couple of minutes where really I'd like you to just kind of set out your stall in terms of what, what you feel the, the real causes of the livestock problems we, we face today are and what your visions of a, a bad livestock future and a desirable livestock future might look like. So if you just kind of confine your, your remarks to just a couple of minutes and then we, we can go, go in turns and then open out into a, a proper discussion. So Helena, please, please go ahead first. 
Great to be here. Hi. Um, so yeah, as, as Tara mentioned, I'm um, the policy director at FAIR and um, we are an investor network that supports investors to understand the risks in the global food system with a particular focus actually on uh, uh, animal agriculture. So um, our research really covers the, the most material issues such as climate, biodiversity, antibiotics and so on. And I think in terms of that question of what you see as the the, the vision of what the future would look like, say coming up to 2050, that's actually a really big issue for investors as well, because a lot of investors have made commitments, um, say to net zero, a lot of them are trying to address deforestation as well in the supply chain. Um, and when we see the sector, there isn't a clear enough roadmap for what we need to see actually to get to 2050. Um, we have seen in other sectors, for example, the IEA's net zero roadmap was very influential and in really showing what we need to see by 2050 and kind of outlining for the energy sector what would the milestones might need to be for different um, stakeholders for different companies and that really helped the energy sector to understand the trend transition that would be needed for 1.5 degrees unfortunately we don't have any equivalent to that sort of IEA net zero roadmap for agriculture and food systems at the moment we don't really have that globally agreed kind of clarity for a central roadmap. Um, so there are different studies out there sort of showing how we, you know, meet uh, various goals, climate, nature, food security, but people are not sort of putting those goals together and looking across multiple sustainable development goals. And that's really what's needed, I think, because there's a lot of different trade-offs. We know that the um, demand for protein is growing. We know that the demand for land is growing. Um, and all of these different pressures will be increasing over the, the next decades. So I think what we need is greater clarity to how to reconcile these multiple issues, the sustainability risks and the planetary boundaries that we face, um, planetary boundaries on land, on uh, pesticide use, um, et cetera. We're not sort of um, meeting the goals at the moment that would lead us to a more sustainable world that would actually be sustainable over the future so yes what many investors have mentioned is that we need a clearer roadmap and that would probably be some combination of um, regenerative approaches for agroecology some combination of diet shifts including um, alternative and plant-based protein sources and then some combination of intensification in the mix as well different pathways and we need more clarity on what that looks like so yeah I'll stop there. Thank, thank you, Helena. Um, Dan, would you like to, to go next? Thank you. Um, as you, you introduced, I, I'm Dan Rato. I'm the Director of Food and Agriculture at the Breakthrough Institute. And I'd like to, to zoom out a little bit to talk about those other SDGs, actually, that Helena mentioned. Um, livestock is not just an environmental problem. It's also interwoven with a bunch of human development problems. There are hundreds of millions of people in the world who um, get much of their income and livelihoods from raising livestock, as well as certainly billions who rely on um, meat, milk, and other products for protein, calories, micronutrients, and other elements of nutrition. Now, although I think it's really easy to kind of have a very, um, Kind of Western perspective and the focus on you know the U.S. where I am or the U.K. where I think many of you are, um, many people around the world, like an estimated an estimated billion billion or so, do suffer from protein deficiencies. And so there's a real case to be made that 
uh, we do need um, more access to, to livestock products in much of the world, as well as, as Helen mentioned, probably less in, um, less meat consumption in places like the US where we consume far above the, the global average. Um, and I think, um, you know, in addition to this human, these human problems that we face on the environmental side, of course, uh, livestock do contribute something on the order of 14 to 19% of global greenhouse gas emissions. We can quibble over the numbers, but it's a substantial amount. And of course, contribute to dramatic land use conversion from forests to pasture and to cropland, as well as a number of other impacts. I think we probably intuitively understand many of the, the drivers or the root causes of this. Certainly, the global population is large. Demand has been rising. Meat demand has doubled or so since 1960 um, per capita. But one element I think that's often lost is um, something that Helena alluded to, which is the low productivity of livestock agriculture in many parts of the world. Um, in many places, the yields per cow and the environmental impacts per cow or per kilogram of beef are much larger, five times or 10 times larger than they are in much of the Western world and in the highest productivity countries. So what I would really emphasize is that need to intensify livestock agriculture more in the coming decades so that the lowest productivity places can raise yields not just reducing environmental impacts, but also providing more access to, to protein, uh, greater profits for livestock producers, and otherwise helping enhance both uh, human welfare as well as uh, environmental welfare. Thank you, Dan. Pablo, um, over to you. I, I suspect you might offer a slightly different take on, on the issues. Yes. Thank you, Tara. Well, I'm Pablo Manzano. I'm an ecologist working at the Bath Center of Climate Change for Climate Change, uh, BC3. And uh, I think my perspective is pretty much uh, oriented by my ecologist background. When we analyze the grazing systems in the world, and I am specialized in grazing systems, both by wild and by domestic livestock, we can see that in, uh, in Europe and in the States and in uh, many developed countries, particularly, we have a lack of herbivory that is causing a lot of uh, environmental problems. And I think that's very descriptive of the evolution that the livestock sector has had in the last decades, uh, where we detect both a decrease in uh, the mobility of, uh, of livestock, which has contributed a lot to decrease uh, the productivity of the systems. Uh, they don't imitate anymore the wild herbivore systems with uh, with a certain degree of mobility that basically uh, follow the productivity of the plants but just stay sedentary and and food has to be brought to them and also we detect um an increasing uh, industrialization of the production uh, and i think that causes artifacts in 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 the data that many people may be, uh, sort of in the wrong way uh, for example, much of the of the footprint that is attributed to uh, to livestock, like the you know the this uh, number from FAO that is quoted very often of the fourteen point five percent of the total anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions triggered by livestock, should be nuanced because um, it is not being accounted that in many of the marginal lands that Dan was just uh, talking about that are perceived to be really unproductive or, or of low productivity. 
Uh, these are lands that cannot be used for, for any other use, that can just be used by livestock because livestock is mobile. For example, in the center of the Sahara, you can use livestock to graze on the annual uh, plants that grow there when one of these rains that happens every seven years happen because you just take the livestock there and you cannot do that with plants. Uh, and seeds, of course, because they're sessile organisms, they're they are not mobile. Um, so it means, in, in all this, it means that for me, the crisis of, of the livestock sector right now is uh, very much linked to an industrialization that with, as with so many other aspects of our current life, is really uh, a drug addict of, uh, of uh, fossil fuels. And uh, we are not going back to these uh, livestock practices that depend less on fossil fuels and that are ecolog ecological proxies or ecological analogies to what wild herbivores would do. And uh, also we have to look at the paleontology. We know that uh, for the last 12 to 15 million years, herbivory has been a force shaping ecosystems all over the world and only in the, in the last tens of thousands of years, we have lost most of the herbivores worldwide. And there are processes triggered by humans, like for example, burning by hunter-gatherers, or also the landscape management that pastoralists do that substitute these functions. So we have the absurd now, the absurd situation now that for example, in, in Europe, uh, where you have a loss of biodiversity because you lose all the open ecosystems, yet you are arguing about the high environmental footprint in terms of greenhouse gas emissions of those herbivores that we are losing and that we shouldn't lose anymore. And whose methane, for example, will be emitted either by deer or, uh, or also by wild uh, fires that we are having both in California, in Australia, in the Mediterranean. Thank you. I mean, um, Dan, would you like to, to come back on that? I mean, I'm seeing a sort of slightly different set of visions and I'm wondering whether this is because of different contexts or whether it's just fundamentally different ideas of what the priorities are for the food system, different kinds of metrics. Um, and I think also we haven't quite defined intensification and industrialization. So perhaps you can start by offering your definition of that and and then and then come back at Pablo. And also what you agree with him about, as well as what you disagree with him. Certainly. So I think it is really important to understand that livestock intensification is not the same necessarily as industrialization. In short, livestock can be intensified, livestock production can be intensified without necessarily mirroring the uh, confined animal feeding operations or you know, sometimes called factory farms um, or by activists that we have in the US and in, in much of the industrialized world. Um, intensification can include many different things that enhance the amount of production per hectare or per animal. It can mean better pasture management. Uh, it can mean, as Pablo was saying, really trying to align the grazing patterns of animals with the productivity of the ecosystem, with the productivity of the forages and grasses so that it's really optimally used. It can also mean um, providing more crop-based feeds to animals. Um, I think that's an area where we'll probably disagree, but uh, grain-based or corn, soy, um, 
uh, based feeds can provide much more energy to animals and help them uh, basically gain weight quicker. And intensification can also mean things that we all, I think, want to see, uh, such as better veterinary care and better reproductive health so that animals get sick less often, um, they, fewer calves are lost during uh, basically birthing so that overall, as much of the energy really going into the system ends up going out as, as meat, as milk and other products that people want to produce. Um, now, these benefits that we see of intensification, I think are also seen with, uh, with CAFOs. Um, and I think that's a very uh, uncomfortable uh, point that there are some environmental benefits certainly with this more industrialized energy intensive and yes, fossil fuel dependent system, certainly um, shifting over to grain-based more confined operations reduces overall land use, although it does involve some more crop land use, um, definitely reduces the pressure on, on pasture, the pressure to increase pasture land into either uh, forests or other types of vegetation. And by almost every study I've seen, it reduces the amount of total greenhouse gas emissions per pound of beef or per pound of milk. There are definitely trade-offs though. I, um, I personally go back and forth over whether I uh, value the environmental benefits of CAFOs more than I value the animal welfare benefits of more grass-fed systems. And certainly there are uh, human labor trade-offs as well, where workers in meat processing plants and workers on, on, on feedlots are not necessarily treated very well. So I don't think there's any silver bullet necessarily or one size fits all solution. Um, I think these are trade-offs that people will make depending on their values and depending on the local um, priorities. In some places, uh, intensifying to the level of CAFO may make sense. In others, it very well may, may not. Um, but you know, that all said, I do want to uh, just emphasize a couple of points Pablo made because I think they're really important and people um, often downplay them. So one is this issue of methane emissions from wildlife. I think that's definitely true that if we were remove cattle or sheep or other um, livestock from an ecosystem and restore it um, to some uh, past version of that ecosystem with wildlife, there will be some amount of methane emissions um, from those animals as well, from deer, um, from bison. Every estimate I've seen suggests that it's substantially smaller, that level of emissions, um, but it does certainly offset a part of the greenhouse gas benefits that we might imagine. Um, so, and I guess just one last point where maybe we uh, kind of all perhaps disagree to some amount is uh, the role of grass-fed production systems. I think that certainly as Pablo mentioned, um, grazing cattle on on pasture and forage lands and rangelands can be really important. At the same time, the level, you know, with growing meat demand and the extremely high level of meat demand we have in some places, we just simply wouldn't be able to meet existing demand exclusively with grass-fed systems. It would substantially increase meat prices 
Um, it's certainly true in the US. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but I think that that's a real trade-off we have to grapple with. Thanks, Dan. I think that that's almost starting to lead on into a discussion about uh, consumption side things. But I'd like to bring in Helena first, um, because I mean, I think you, yeah, I mean, Pablo comes from a quite a sort of bottom up perspective, um, involving people who may or may, may not be so closely connected to the kind of global financial system. Whereas you, you look at this from a very, very macro scale, looking at working with your investors. And I mean, I think, in a way, you kind of straddle both Pablo and Dan in so far as Dan's vision of the kind of the CAFO and the intensification as a way to go is something that you are highlighting as a kind of rife with a whole load of risks on the one hand and on the other Pablo's vision of a sort of smaller scale agroecological uh, approach is perhaps not within the purview of your of the people that you work with or, but I'm putting words into your mouth so perhaps you could comment on that yeah oh it's a really interesting debate and I think just actually first off I just want to say that you know, we need to draw a huge distinction between the huge industrial CAFOs um, that we see in intestine livestock production, primarily going to the rich sort of global north consumption level and the smallholders, which are, you know, primarily sort of um, tending to their livelihoods and in fact, most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change rather than causing um, climate change themselves. So I think just to put that there, the Lancet report, you know, provides a science-based approach that says that in the global north, actually, um, the animal protein consumption is too high and, and would need to be um, reduced to meet planetary boundaries, whereas in the global south, um, in many places, there may be room to increase that. So just to put that out there at the beginning, I wanted to touch on some of the issues that Dan had raised, actually, most distinctly in kind of um, offer a perspective. One is the greenhouse gas efficiency per unit, which has been used as a variable. But I think from the investor perspective, you really cannot just look at greenhouse gases. That's extremely important because if you only look from a carbon perspective, you could lead to very perverse incentives, say for biodiversity, for antibiotics, and for a whole other host level of risks if you were to intensify production only focusing on greenhouse gas per unit. Secondly, it hasn't worked very well for the fossil fuel sector. So there's a parallel there. Efficiency of fossil fuel extraction um, obviously was something that the fossil fuel um, industrial sector um, promoted a lot, thinking that that would reduce emissions. But the efficiency of fossil fuel um, per unit obviously leads to greater use of fossil fuels and greater extraction. So I would say fundamentally that is a, a parallel that we need to draw. And perhaps we need more research on that, I think, because we don't have enough information about how greenhouse gas efficiency per unit may not reduce global emissions if you look at it from a livestock perspective as well as the other ESG risks that are involved. So that could be an interesting area for future research in how the perverse incentives could occur. Um, and then another issue is that you, you mentioned using less land and some of the most intensive systems, but actually, I mean, I think there's an issue there of the animal feed production, um, which goes into that because yes, per land unit, it may be if animals are more intensively produced, they would use less land. But um, as we know, biodiversity is a huge issue. And our fair sort of research shows that 
a huge number of the um, protein producers, over 70% are not tracking whether they are causing deforestation down their supply chain. So we don't have the data, unfortunately, at the moment, we literally don't have the data to know about the animal feed and how that could be causing deforestation. Um, as we know that, you know, a huge amount of global soya production, around 70% goes to livestock, and we don't know you know, how that's causing deforestation. So we, we are lacking the data to understand these issues as well. Um, and the final part I'd just like to mention, looking from an investor perspective, you can really reduce a whole host of risks by looking more into diversification into sustainable protein. And that is something that now a lot of companies are doing and a lot of investors are looking at. And that means um, plant-based meat alternative products, um, which primarily feed that, you know, the growing demand levels um, and alternative protein can also mean sort of very simple products ranging from, you know, bean burgers, lentil burgers, et cetera, to um, more kind of um, processed products. But whichever products they are, they do have a range of environmental benefits, actually, because they reduce not just climate risk, but also biodiversity risk, antibiotic risk, um, land use, et cetera. So I think there is a role for that and a lot of companies we sell even the large sort of protein producers are looking at that issue although we haven't seen enough awareness of policy makers right now so policy is the third sort of point that i would like to raise um, intensive systems that we have are hugely reliant on agricultural subsidies so why while they may look efficient they actually um, are economically inefficient and a sort of inefficient way to produce protein so that is an area which I think uh, may require greater understanding um, and greater information. Th th thank you, Helena. Um, Pablo, I mean, I just was hoping you would kind of respond to Helena, because on the one hand, we have the, this, this concept of the, the alternative, more sustainable protein, which is often um, the focus of investment by these big, large-scale CAFO-linked um, animal protein producers who are the kind of the antithesis of, of the systems that you're promoting. So I'm just wondering what your take is on this. And I think it would also be quite useful to kind of zoom out into a larger discussion about what we mean by dietary change, its, its potentials and the limitations. Yeah, well, I wanted to agree with Helena that, uh, uh, you know, policies actually orient how the private sector acts and, and that's very important and I think even if uh, more could be done from the side of policy the the fact that uh, these initiatives for uh, for alternative protein sources and uh, like plant-based meat and all that stuff comes into place is also from from the demand of the consumers but also from the demand of, of, of policymakers and I also wanted to agree with Dan that uh, intensification in general uh, in, in many aspects, it's something good. And the fact that, for example, less calves and less lambs die now than 100 years ago, which is a way of intensification, of course, that's that's good for, for providing more food, for uh, for providing more protein for people that, uh, for example, I've worked 10 years in Africa, and I, I know that uh, half of the African population is considered to be stunted because of insufficient access to animal source food. So it's, it's a big issue. But um, I think here what we have is a set of assumptions that even if they are in the mainstream, uh, I consider them to be wrong, directly wrong. Um, 
for example, the land use change, and this is an aspect that, uh, that you both have mentioned, uh, it is considered that any land used by livestock is land used by humans, and therefore it's land that is negatively used. However, from the side of the ecology and from the side of the evidence from, from biodiversity, we know that for grazed ecosystems, which are basically all except for rainforests, at least since uh, 15 million years ago, a, a, a moderate uh, herbivory mediated either by wild herbivores or by domestic herbivores is positive. It's not neutral, it's positive in terms of ecosystem function and in terms of um, and in terms of biodiversity. However, it is also uh, very important to define how it is used. Of course, it's not the same if you have a herd of cows grazing all year long in, uh, in a grass lawn, because it would be the same effect as if you are mowing your grass every day. Of, of course, you would kill the plants. You will need to graze them and then let them rest and then graze them again and let them rest, just as you would do in your garden lawn. It's, it's the same. And then you would produce a landscape, which is the natural landscape that we would have observed, see in the, in the last interglacial in the Eemian, which had a similar climate as, as now, but with way more herbivores all over the place, where would, we would have a mixture of trees, shrubs, and a lot of grass, much more than, than we imagine. And I think that's the misconception that outside the small world of the vegetation ecologists that I belong to, is a massively misunderstood in the world. For example, the, the Cerrado or the Chaco, which I happen to, to have been working with communities in the Chaco region in South America uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, it is interpreted that it's the livestock that is deforesting the Chaco, but actually it is the livestock keepers in the Chaco that are uniting themselves against the deforesters, which guess what, are the grain producers the soybean producers and the maize producers that are actually not really triggering uh, deforestation as we imagine of a closed forest that turns into a pasture, but rather a savanna. Uh, the Chaco and the Cerrado are, are uh, described as a savanna already by Enrique Bucher in uh, 1984. Uh, it's turning that into a cropland and it's a cropland to, uh, well, to produce um, soybean oil which is uh, used mainly for human uh, production, but with a very valuable co-product, which is the soy, soybean cake, which is fed to basically monogastrics. That is not to ruminants, but to chicken and to pork. So it's this grain fraction that makes this uh, intensification possible that is actually creating a lot of, of this land use change, negative land use change. And uh, also you mentioned, um, well, you mentioned also the existing demand that we have to cope with the existing, existing demand. Uh, in my opinion, that shouldn't be an issue because, you know, I think we should aim to produce as sustainable as possible. And then we should just adjust the demand to the offer that we have on sustainable production, which I believe is much more than we think because of the reasons that I that I am highlighting in, in this talk. Um, and uh, also a very important issue that you mentioned is that all the estimates that you have read, and I'm sure you are, you are right that you have read all these estimates, uh, say that there is much more livestock than, uh, than wild herbivores there should be. 
but this is a very inter interesting study, interesting subject that I happen also to know personally because I know the persons implicated in that. This was formulated by Anthony Barnowski in a publication in PNAS in 2008. And uh, a friend of uh, Dr. Barnowski happens to be a collaborator of mine at the University of Helsinki, where I have performed a postdoc during the last two years. And he told me that Barnowski talks about that. Uh, it was just a calculation on the back of an envelope to trigger the debate. But unfortunately, there has been no debate. So people have just taken the numbers that Barnowski published on PNAS, and, and uh, they, haven't, they haven't discussed them further. For example, the revision that Baron et al. in PNAS uh, three years ago that they published, they just took directly the numbers from, uh, from Barnowski. And I have a paper submitted now that hopefully will be published soon when I contest these numbers with some newer numbers that have been published. But for example, you have a very uh, recent publication in Journal of Applied Ecology. The first author, uh, I'm not good with Danish names, but it's like Flockart or something like that. But it's from the lab of, uh, of uh, Dr. Svenning, who is uh, very known for, for these things, Jens Svenning. And they have actually uh, seen what the natural or the seemingly natural densities of herbivores are in protected areas in all, in all the continents. And even if it's a not very fine work because they have done a global work and they have taken just the, the data that they could, they show that in Africa and in Asia where you have complete guilds of herbivores, you have elephants, you have lots of antelopes, you have browsers, uh, you have grazers and not only browsers because in Europe and in the States we have lost most of the grazers, we only have browsers. And uh, you have really high densities of, of herbivores, really high, I mean much more than, than what we are imagining now. And uh, it's true that in other continents these densities are lower uh, but it's also true that in other continents, uh, animals are not able to migrate as they used to. And I'm personally doing a research right now in Spain on that. And uh, in Spain, we are having really troubles to find a natural uh, protected area where you, we can observe migration because, you know, as all developed countries, it is so fragmented by roads, by crop plants, etc., that uh, it's impossible to have a Serengeti, so to say. Okay. But we have a national park in central Spain, where it's uh, because of the alignment of the mountain ranges and also because it used to be a hunting area. So they reserve some very productive area, not for croplands, but to, to have animals there, where we observe these kind of migrations. And even if we are talking just about red deer, because we have lost all, um, all grazers and, and the red deer are browsers, we are observing a density of deer that is about half what we would get in an extensive livestock system. Okay. So. Yeah. So I think and that's no, and just a just a last point, Sarah, uh, Tara. Sorry, I also wanted to say that um, in my experience in Africa, also development agencies are not very realistic in terms of. Uh, implementing CAFOs in, in rural areas in Africa, for example, because it's also not understood that the communities there cannot enter capital-intensive economic strategies. And this is also, like from the social point of view, it's also an advantage of the extensive livestock systems that they are not capital-intensive. Yeah. 
Thank you. I'm I'm mindful of time and that we 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 started a little bit late. And I'd also like to move on to the um, discussion of, of the COP and the needs the needs for the for the future COP. But but before doing so, I'd just like to kind of go back to this question of consumption and trying to link it a little bit more with 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 values as well and with what we as kind of individuals or as as researchers feel to be a good system and a good future and a feasible future so just um so so one of the one of the points that sort of the obvious point is that you know our population globally is now largely urban and is going to be more and more urban over the over over time um and and i, I think we have two several kind of some visions going on here what one is to be very very crude about it which is that people want to eat meat give them cleaner meat another another vision is people want to eat meat give them decent substitutes and a third vision which was um give people want meat it's right and proper but their appetite should adjust to the kind of ecological um kind of carrying capacity and i think those are kind of some, some very common sets of discussions that that we have that are never quite resolved but have i understood you correctly and and in terms of how how that feeds into policy making and into ideas about what a way forward is and what's both desirable and what's feasible i'd be really really interested if you could if you could reflect upon this not just from the perspective of the evidence you marshal but also about your own personal visions of what you would like things to be like going forward and how how far removed that is from what you see to be likely so uh, who would like to go first dan go ahead i can jump in briefly i think from my perspective what matters most with regards to consumption is how policies are really designed that or how efforts are designed to, to change other people's consumption and behavior uh, i think that the actual point of intervention, whether it's a, like a subsidy or a tax or mandate or regulation or educational campaign, that that to me is really the crux of the issue, more so than um, what ultimate level of consumption we're trying to achieve. And from my perspective, what there seems to be the most interest in and really strong evidence for um, from what we've learned from trying to cut greenhouse gas emissions and improve environmental impacts in other sectors, what really seems important is to really try to make uh, low carbon or really clean meat cheap, to make more sustainable meat cheap, um, whether that's animal-based or plant-based, whether that's grass-fed or not. Ultimately, I think any effort that is focused on making products more expensive, taxing it or mandating some maximum level of consumption, uh, banning meat on Fridays, for instance, or, or something along those lines, is going to inevitably run into really uh, insurmountable political obstacles in, in most countries, perhaps not in all, but I think in most, in, in most European uh, countries as well as in the US. And I think that political element is something that we all need to take really seriously because Ultimately, we don't want to pursue, I think, pipe dreams um, for policies that may, on paper, on a spreadsheet, seem optimal, but ultimately, in the public sphere, 
are are not going to get their time of day. Um, thank you, uh, Helena. Would you would you like to come in? Yeah, I, th I think yeah, this is a really interesting discussion. But no, yeah, I agree. I think it's probably um, some kind of version of that. But I would say that in terms of that definition of clean clean meat. Um, that's not really sort of um, terminology that I'm familiar with in terms of an, a sort of definition. But I do think what we're seeing is um, a kind of diversification into the non-animal protein as a way to reduce risk. Um, and I do think there is a, a role also for the regenerative um, agricultural systems as well, because we've seen um, obviously various studies and Pablo mentioned some of them in the more extensive systems, there is obviously be benefits there, but there's a big difference between the extensive and the intensive systems. The only issue with that, some of the focus now on regenerative agriculture, which um, has been kind of, you know, held up a lot and pushed within the policy space, is that that does actually use a lot more land as well. So the um, Roundtree and et al. sort of study and others kind of show that the, the land intensity of the regenerative agricultural systems is higher. So it's not sort of a silver bullet solution which people can promote essentially for <laughs> um, th those reasons. So I think in that case, it is definitely a combination of the two. And what was quite interesting was I thought the um, UK's national food strategy, which obviously was a proposal which hasn't been accepted into policy, but that had sort of around sort of one third um, of sort of alternative proteins sort of around a third of regenerative agriculture and some intensification in there and sort of the combination of the, the three areas seems to have a lot of understanding of the different trade-offs between climate biodiversity and so on but I mean within that system there's a radical transformation needed to get to the system where we are now um, to a more sustainable system um, but yeah, I'll um, leave it then. And so I'm going to come back to you on that because I think that will lead very well onto the COP. But I mean, I think I think Pablo, perhaps you could you could offer your response, but also sort of tie it into what you feel is needed in the next few months um, as we move towards COP27, and also what you feel the role to be of the different kind of stakeholders, from sort of policymakers to civil society um, to, to industry in in thinking about how to move forward yeah i wanted to reflect on the on the demand point because um i think the fact that prices go up meat prices go up if we bet for sustainable meat or for sustainable animal products milk and and others is not necessarily bad because we have a, a crisis worldwide and not only in developed countries where we have a massive problem of depopulation but also in developing countries uh, for for the prices paid for for to my uh, criterion uh, sustainable production of animal products which involves pastoralists uh, many of them by the way doing regenerative grazing without knowing because that's that's more of a thing of of developed countries uh, the the consideration i mean whereas the techniques are are pretty common it's adaptive grazing and etc um i don't think it is really a problem that the prices go up as long as in uh, in the in the states in the in the different countries we have redistribution mechanisms that allow poor people to access to uh, to an, a healthy level 
of uh, animal source uh, products of, of sustainable origin. But um, uh, an increase in prices is something that would contribute to reduce poverty in very marginal areas that have no other options of, um, of human development and of livelihoods, and that are now experiencing a crisis because of the unfair competition by more industrial uh, ways of, of production that actually achieve cheap, uh, cheap products that are made available everywhere through globalization and uh, that push them out of, um, of their uh, economic sustainability, I would say, and of their social sustainability. And uh, much of it explains a lot of the crisis that we are seeing, you know, even, even related to, to, maybe you will think I am exaggerating, but this is also an area that I'm working on right now. Uh, the whole crisis on terrorism in the Sahel and all the problems of uh, of insecurity are pretty much related with uh, a lack of access to social services and, and lack of getting enough income in these communities. Um, and usually the, the move towards violence and towards insecurity is triggered by this uh, insufficient income that may maybe not lead to hunger, but leads to social crises like inside their communities to access marriage and, and, and other things. So uh, I do think that uh, we have win-win solutions in, in this field. But in that sense, and uh, concretely on the question that you ask, uh, Tara, um, what I would like the COP to, to host is a revision, uh, a revision on how these impacts are evaluated so that sustainable livestock systems are better evaluated because i think right now it's not done in a multi-sectoral way it's not done in a multidisciplinary way and it's not um you know nobody is considering the 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 factors that i am discussing here and that may cause uh policy actions and uh, and evolutions of the sector that may be counterproducing for for tackling climate change so that's that's something that uh, the IPCC and and also the the part the parties of the COP should take really seriously, and they are not taking it seriously right now, and that worries me. That worries me a lot. Thank you, Dan. Would you what what would your be your your sort of wish list for the COP, and and how 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 different or how similar is it? To, I mean, what do you agree with? Um, that the, the Pablo said, and, and what would you add or, or challenge? So on the note of, of the next COP, I think there are a number of successes from the previous one that can be built upon. So in COP26, or really right around it, a number of countries, I believe 30 or so, uh, signed on together to commit more funding to research and development in agriculture to help with climate smart innovation. And I think there are a number of areas in livestock production um, where we could substantially reduce environmental impacts, in particular methane emissions from industrialized systems in the US and UK and Western Europe and elsewhere um, through new technologies, through things like uh, feed additives or, or supplements that reduce um, the, the methane that come out of uh, from basically from, from cow burps. Um, there are potentially vaccines that can be developed to reduce methane emissions, new breeding programs. There's a huge need here for, for more research. Um, 
And particularly, um, you know, that, that's true outside of industrialized countries as well. We talked about the importance of intensification. A lot of that comes from improved research, applied research, as well as education and extension programs. So I would love to see a huge ramp up in funding commitments for something like that. Um, that's probably the primary thing. Um, there, I, I think I want to, I guess, clarify something that perhaps Pablo and I seem to disagree about, which is this role of prices. I certainly think that um, higher livestock prices um, that are really market driven are certainly really beneficial for livestock producers. That, that, that's true um, really throughout agriculture. Uh, it's true for crop producers as well. But I do think that um, artificially applied increases the price, whether it's a, a tax on the, you know, at the consumer end at retail um, or a tax at the, the supplier end, for instance. Um, people have thrown around the idea of like a carbon tax uh, on greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. That unnecessarily places um, you know, financial burden on producers. It doesn't necessarily increase the market price that they're getting. So that, that, that's a real differentiation I want to make there. And similarly, really trying to make these products cheaper, I think a lot of it can come from providing financial support for producers to adopt um, evidence-based environmentally beneficial practices, whether in some cases that's more regenerative grazing or adaptive management, uh, goes by many different names, or whether it's these feed additives I mentioned that's um, sometimes called deburping pills that cut the methane emissions from cows. Thank you, thank you. And Helena, I mean, I think you you must be really sort of gearing up. So, what what's on your your wish list, and and what do you feel the role of uh, investors is in in trying to shift towards a more sort of sustainable food? Yeah. System? So, I think it was really interesting to see at the last COP COP twenty six actually fossil fuels um, really came to the fore, and also fossil fuel subsidies as well as an important issue that a lot of governments are focused on. And I think. What could be interesting now is for agricultural subsidies to receive similar weight, actually, as there's been a lot of discussion showing how many subsidies there are globally and how negative they are for biodiversity, etc. I think that would be a, quite a big topic. And some of our um, investors recently also signed a, a statement calling on the EU to better align its agricultural subsidies with both climate and nature um, since investors are trying to kind of meet their own goals but they cannot do this without policy action sort of actually um putting the right measures in place to uh, flow towards a more sustainable system so that would be interesting to see that receiving a similar weight as it is we, we have more than 400 billion agricultural subsidies and the un etc have released reports saying how unsustainable most of those subsidies are um, so I think there are primarily a lot of these subsidies artificially lowering the prices of the more unsustainable products. So they're almost going to the opposite of what we need to see actually right now. So perhaps that's something we could we could all agree. Um, and the other question I'd like to raise is, you know, this intensification as well. I think as Pablo mentioned, there's been a lot of um, use of sort of public funds, including development funds, with the assumption that intensification would create a better system. Um, sometimes it has also displaced livelihoods and jobs as well as um, creating 
you know, products. So I think there's a big difference between the producers and the consumers. Um, and in terms of the methane topic, just a slightly different perspective there as well. I think that, you know, obviously some of these solutions which are kind of within the same system, um, kind of incremental solutions can also lower uh, methane emissions as well. But I would also say that another way to reduce methane emissions is a more kind of uh, systemic solution, such as um, a shift to a more plant-rich and sustainable protein um, diversification within portfolios, because that is another way that will fundamentally reduce methane emissions as well. So um, it will be really interesting to see how the methane pledges are taken forwards. At the moment, only energy has received attention really within the methane debate. Hardly, hardly a word in about um, agricultural methane, even though as the IEA released um, this week, agriculture is the largest source of methane emissions um, globally. So I think there's going to have to be more focus on that if we're going to reach the 1.5 goal. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Thank you. I'm I'm very mindful of the fact that we've got we've got a pile of questions that that are from the audience and um, and I'd like to come on to these in a minute. But before I do that, I think it would be really uh, helpful for each of you to kind of take stock and say, uh, is there anything that you've heard from the other speakers that has that either you agree with or that has modified your your opinion? And where do you feel kind of further entrenched in your in your in your viewpoints or where do you uh, where do you continue to disagree I would just like to try and get you to kind of reach across and see what what have you heard where you may have nuanced your your point of view I mean who would like to kick off first and if you haven't changed your mind at all then that's that's very predictable but you know um, I probably um, have to start. Yeah, one I did kind of agree with the point from Dan that better animal welfare um, is a kind of win-win. Um, so I guess from that, it's like, what do we define as um, welfare? Because it seems to reduce emissions. So that would be sort of what what we define in that within that term. And then I did also very much agree with Pablo mentioning that the food security um, issue is a, a security issue as well, broadly more than just. A food issue and i think that's really important to consider because a lot of investors are understanding the financial stability risks related to the unsustainable food system and how it affects loads of different issues but i think not enough policymakers are aware of how food sustain unsustainable issues are a, a severe financial stability risk as well as a security risk thank you pablo have you how about you yeah, I mean, not not that I've changed my my mind, but I have changed my perception maybe on the arguments of of intensification because I am happy that when people talk about intensification, they they talk about improvement in production that involves uh, you know real real improvements within uh, within a food system and not switching to a, to a more industrial or to a more confined system like uh, what we were discussing about improved uh, range and um, soil management or uh, or about improved um, veterinary care etc and i also am, i'm happy to see that uh, that we also agree on you know on the shortcomings of for example subsidies that are very often oriented to productivity and this is even if there is a, a change in it but it's a very slow change in the common agricultural policy 
from productivity that has actually uh, stimulated more more industrial ways of producing towards um towards more environmental aspects and i think that's that's um that's good you know and ultimately i think also that the hike in fossil fuel prices that we are going to see because of scarcity of fossil fuels is also going to put things in in place you know in, and it's going to make uh, fossil fuel intense animal production more expensive than the ways of animal production that are more uh, that are less dependent to it uh, on however i must continue to disagree on on the strategies for for reducing methane emission in agriculture because it's not only that most of the methane is produced by the most extensive productions that are more similar to wild herbivores but it is also, and, and we tend to forget it completely, that uh, global warming is not only greenhouse gas, greenhouse gases and greenhouse gas effect from, from the gases, but it's also an albedo element. And uh, there is also comprehensive literature showing that a switch from savannas to forests in uh, subtropical areas, not in tropical areas, but in subtropical areas, and also in more temperate and boreal areas, is uh, going to cause a change in the albedo, a negative change in the albedo in terms of uh, absorbing more energy, and it is likely to worsen climate change. Uh, so, um, yeah, I keep on being pretty convinced that we shouldn't touch the pastoral systems. <laughs> okay, well, Dan, how about you You give your last words and then, and then we'll move on to some questions, whichever, however many we can squeeze in. Sure. I, I, I'm increasingly, uh, I think I'm increasingly convinced by the Pablo's perspective and, and a perspective about the ecological benefits of, of grazing. I remain, I think, very, uh, continue to hold very strong beliefs that there are many problems caused by poor grazing around the world. And I think that can often be lost when you talk about um, grazing as being beneficial. I think we need to be really nuanced and specific in these discussions these discussions and also i absolutely agree both with helena and, and pablo about what they would like to see in the next cop i think we really do need uh, to see a lot more of a lot more analysis about the role of agriculture and methane emissions but also for that analysis to be um to really take seriously these critiques that pablo and others are making about um the total system-wide effects of removing livestock from the landscape. How much of those emissions might be replaced by wildlife emissions? What will be the effects on ecosystems, on soil carbon, on albedo? Those are all really important to consider. And I wouldn't want to see countries make hasty decisions about how to meet their methane pledge through agriculture without really taking that more holistic approach. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. So just some questions. Um, I think we've got, I mean, there's a ton of questions here. Um, one of them is, um, I think, I think is actually been more or less addressed, but so perhaps you'd be very quick about it, but beef tends to grab most of the attention discussion of environmental impacts, but could speakers comment on what they see as the role of other livestock, sheep, goats, pigs, poultry in a sustainable future food system um 
Yeah, I mean, Pablo, could you say something about the poultry issue? Because I know you're no, you know, that there is this kind of, depending on who you talk to, poultry good or poultry bad, um, depending on which metric you use. Um, do you see a positive role for poultry and pig production? Well, rescuing the last comment of Dan, I think it is important to, to nuance every discourse. Uh, and I don't think all grazing livestock is good because it depends on how you manage that grazing livestock, definitely. And that's I'm happy to see that this is part of the intensification to manage it better. And with poultry, it's the same to, with poultry or with pigs, because uh, in my mind, uh, the big distinction is between monogastrics, that is pigs and poultry, and uh, and uh, ruminants, which is goats, uh, sheep, uh, cows, yaks, uh, camels, etc. Um, and uh, I think both pigs and and poultry have uh, a tremendous potential, and also some some um, some fish cultures in recycling waste, and we shouldn't forget that. And I am also personally working on pastoral systems based on pigs, which are the, the great forgotten side of, of pastoral systems, usually linked to, to forests. I'm preparing also a paper on that. Um, but uh, regarding the, the chicken, I think they are, or the poultry, I think they're very useful at the, at the backyard level. Uh, to um, you know, to use waste uh, to increase circularity of of uh, of the economy, and uh, that should not be that that should not be forgotten. However, when you enter into a dynamic of more industrial facilities, this is when the problems start. Also, because of a matter of density of waste of of uh, I mean of of excreta of the of the chicken, you know, um, when you have. Uh, what uh, what we talk about in our research group, uh, livestock keeping that is linked to the territory, no matter if it's ruminants or if it's monogastrics, usually the environmental impacts are, are much less. And, and I think the link to the territory would also include um, ways of uh, raising poultry and pigs that uh, take advantage of the waste and that um, that do not produce humongous quantities of, of animals that will cause a lot of problems with the excreta, as we are seeing right now in, in many countries, especially, I think, for pigs, but also poultry is a problem for that. Thank you. Um, I have a question here that is probably well um, addressed to, to Helena, actually. Um, it's about, it, it goes like this. Some of the plant-based foods um, uh, are high, in, high in fat, sugar, and or salt, and highly processed and not in line with a healthy, sustainable diet. Um, so what? how do you see this fitting into the... The, the, the goal of uh, shifting towards sustainable proteins, where there may be a trade-off between the sort of the carbon footprint, however you might want to measure that, and, and the health agenda. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point that needs further research, actually, as well, because, I mean, um, there is a wide range of different definitions of the non-animal non protein products, a really, really wide range. So it could mean anything, alternative protein could really mean anything from sort of lentil, bean burgers, very simple, right the way to, to more processed or more salt intensive products. So I think there is a role for the investors to call for better nutrition as well in the products that are being produced. 
and to make sure that the um, nutritional aspect is looked at as well. Um, because obviously what a, a lot of companies are doing are just responding to consumer demand and everybody likes the taste of salt and, you know, um, so I think that's an interesting point. Um, but we also know that a lot of processed um, meat products are also linked to health issues as well. So if it's sort of replacing one with another, I'm not sure, you know, actually it could be beneficial as well. So it's very complex. And I would say that it requires a lot more research um, in terms of improving the products that are being produced at the moment and making sure that nutritional wins are gained as well as the environmental wins that are gained as well. And do you think that within within the investment uh, sector um, is health is nutritional health seen at all as a, an issue to be that, that is associated with risk? Definitely, I think it's rising up the agenda definitely because it's become a lot more on the agenda and, and the focus is there. So I think a lot of these new ESG frameworks now are sort of being developed for the newer products. Um, what is happening is that there's a lot of new products coming to market um, and sometimes there are, you know, it's harder for the data to be made available as well. So I think we'll see an increased focus on that as, as the sector develops, really. Thank you. Um, I have a general question. I, mean, I don't know who wants to pick this one up. Um, COP27 is billed by Egypt as the Africa COP. Please could speakers comment on the different challenges in achieving sustainability facing livestock farmers in African developing countries and industrial economies. I mean, I think we touched upon this in, in our conversation just now, but but perhaps you could expand on it a bit. Dan, would you like to have a go? I think, honestly, I'll, I'll make my comments brief. I'm really curious to hear what Pablo has to say about this, given his experience working in Africa. Um, I have not worked in Africa, but based on um, my my work, one of the top challenges and really opportunities is really investing in agricultural productivity um, in, in, in much of Africa. There are some countries, uh, certainly uh, South Africa in particular, that have, already have highly developed, highly productive agricultural systems. But in many, many parts of the continent, um, there are very large uh, yield gaps between what uh, farmers could be producing what they currently are due to um, limited availability of fertilizers and irrigation and water and likewise in livestock there, there's a lot of potential to substantially increase productivity i think one aspect of this too that's really important to consider is how to uh, really future proof um, these uh, agricultural production systems how to make sure that the changes that countries companies and other people are investing in today uh, help people become more resilient to the projected increases in warming, changes in uh, water availability, changes in pest pressures. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. And uh, I think uh, Africa also has a, an immense challenge in terms of population pressure because it has to give a lot of food to a lot of people that are coming because it has very, very high fertility rates. Um, and it also has a lot to a lot of way to go in terms of improvements and in terms of of uh, the what I consider the good side of of intensification, because um, 
since the independence of, of most of uh, African countries in the 60s, you can trace the extension services, how they have been falling apart, basically, and how there has not been enough investment in that. And there is a huge need of investment in, in those extension services. I think it's not necessary to switch the, the production systems, the local production systems, from uh, the, the agroecological systems that are dominating now into more industrial ones. I don't think at all that this is necessary, but they do need a lot of, uh, of um, extension services, much more than now. And uh, it's also interesting to live in Africa and to see how the new technologies are expanding very fast, for example, with mobile phones, and to see what the immense potential it would be, for example, for, for pastoralists, again, to provide them with extension services to measure some, some um, parameters of the animals uh, by remote means. And that nobody is doing that so far is, uh, is, uh, is a little bit sad, you know? So I think there is a, a lot of potential, but uh, also probably African governments need to listen much more to what is happening within the communities themselves, because there is a lot of innovation going on. Um, that uh, very often gets uncaptured because nobody is, is listening to it. What kind of innovation? Well, for example, um, I don't know if you can do that in Great Britain, but in Spain you can already pay with the mobile phone, okay, in shops and so on. Well, this is a yeah. Kenyan invention. It started with M-Pesa, mobile mm -hmm. Pesa. Pesa means money in Swahili. And this was a Kenyan guy that came uh, with the idea because they were sending airtime to uh, to remote family members in the countryside um, just to, to pay for things and an informal economy developed on that. So they formalized that in... I, I started paying with M-Pesa 12 years ago when I moved to Kenya. So, And uh, that's something that, uh, you know, where the, where the South has exported solutions to the North, to the global North, but there are many more more things like that, you know, and uh, for example, using, it's interesting because in many African countries, you have not had a development of landline tele telephones. They have jumped directly from nobody having a telephone to everybody having a, a, a mobile telephone, a, you know, a, a mobile. So, um, I mean, it's difficult to give examples right now, but uh, for example, in terms of extensions, instead of, of uh, market management, I also worked on the Ngorongoro region and you saw their very smart uh, strategies to maximize the price of the animals and uh, and get the, the most of it by by just doing it's it's interesting because you have very old ways of thinking that uh, in in economies that are not based based on cash but on capital you know because livestock there is capital so they are very conservative in selling the animals whereas you have younger people that are very cash based and they do crazy things in the, in the eyes of the old people you know they sell all animals when the prices are good and they buy animals when the prices are very low and it's like what are you doing and these are the guys that are doing best and that are the the elder of the village with 35 years because they have more cattle than no one with with than anyone with this crazy strategy you know so you know maybe with financial training and with you would achieve much better production uh, in the livestock system and um, 
and just implementing these innovations, you know, but then you would be much more uh, willing to listen to what is happening in the field, which I, it, it's not what I have seen in, in, in my work experience. Great. Well, I think we have time for one more question and it's a hard one and I'm going to give it to Helena, um, but feel free to chip in everyone. Um, there's a question that came through us. How can trade regulation in the context of international beef supply chains be used as a lever to promote sustainable beef consumption? And if you want to pass on that and someone else wants to take it up, it's 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 a hard one. Yeah, I'm happy to, to touch on it. I think one of the really interesting developments that's happening and people have been following is this uh, deforestation risk um, in supply chains. And the EU's obviously looking to bring in a um, regulation to prevent imported deforestation. Um, and then the UK is sort of discussing that as well. So that's kind of a way in which, you know, trade regulations can be used to address these kind of systemic issues. Um, Obviously, they have implications for the finance sector as well when these new rules come in uh, as well. So we're just tracking that to see what happens as well. Um, but it's quite interesting to see this now, you know, is being in, in the debate and that will probably force change in terms of the companies um, needing to look at deforestation where they haven't looked at it before. Um, particularly, obviously, some of these products, which um, Pablo mentioned before, are causing a lot of deforestation, such as imported soy feed, etc., um, animal feed and other products, which cause uh, a large amount of deforestation. So that's one area. And another area is obviously linked to the area of trade would be agricultural subsidy reform, which we've already discussed, but how that could actually um, promote sustainability and long term sustainability of the sector. Um, and also other ways in which kind of trade rules can be used to prevent sort of importation of, of high-risk products as well. Great. Well, look, we are we are out of time. Um, there are many, many more questions. I would also say that we have um, our, the table website, tabledebates.org, has a community platform. So please do post your uh, further questions and comments there and I will also uh, try and twist um, our panelists arms to see maybe if they might have a go at answering some of them if, if they felt so inclined so um, I just want to um, thank thank our speakers um, a great deal and for a really really interesting um, conversation especially in light of all those technical difficulties at the beginning and I must also remember to um, remind everyone uh, listening and thank you very much to the audience for for listening and for submitting your questions that there is um, another event um, this time uh, next week uh, uh, that's third um, which is Tim Palmer and Charles Godfrey in conversation on the topic of modeling climate change predicting the future so please uh please uh listen in on that um so that's i think it for now we're out of time thank you very much to all our speakers and to the audience and um and a recording will be available um in due course so good night